You say sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some. Right now, right now I'm losing that. Stood on the stage night after night, reminding the broken it'll be alright. Right now, oh, right now I just can't. It's easy to see when there's nothing to bring me down. What will I say when I'm Kill to the flame like I am right now. I know you're able and I don't care. Save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. See, it only takes a little faith. A good thing, a little faith is all I have right now. God, when you choose to leave mountains unmovable, oh, give me the strength to be able to sing. It is well with my soul. Good morning, Cypress Bible Church. Welcome to worship this morning. We are glad that you are here with us. Um, Luke, I didn't ask you to do this before, but would you give me a little music? We're going to start our service this morning by singing um, the song Waymaker. Before we sing it, I want to, I want to say something. I want to say that uh, throughout the Bible, there are many names for God. Um, at Christmas, we sing a lot about Emmanuel, which means God with us. Palm Sunday, we sing Hosanna, God save us now. Um, the name Jehovah is used a lot. It means the I am, the self-existent God. Um, and there's other uh, similar names, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides, who sees ahead and provides. And when I was thinking about this song, I was thinking um, that God knew that we needed a way could not come to him on our own, but he made a way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. 
So when we sing this song, we're proclaiming God's character, not pet names or anything like that, but, but who he is. He is the way maker. He is promise keeper. He is the light in the darkness. And I invite you now to stand with us as we sing to him. Keep light in the darkness, my God, that 
more time. You are way make miracle work, promise keep light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. And even when we don't see it, we know that He is working and He never stops working. And for that reason, even in the lowest valleys, even when our hearts are heavy, we can always sing and we can always lift his name high.
seated at this time. When we come together to worship, uh, we come from a variety of different places, uh, different generations, different experiences, in person, online, and i uh, just like to read from Psalm 145, and it is that we come together in unity in the midst of our diversity. It says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and declare your mighty acts. And so as we come together, we come together, as I said, in diversity and yet in unity, we worship the one true God, and we're glad you're here this morning. I'm Brian Carroll, equipping pastor. My privilege to welcome you. At Cypress Bible Church, we believe it's important to gather for life-changing worship. Again, whether that's in person or online, we're glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. We also believe that it's important to grow through life-changing truth. That's why we think it's important that you be connected to a smaller group of people, whether that's in a class or a group. And so we have lots of opportunities, both online and in person. And if you're interested in finding more about those, you can either contact the church, or if you're here, you can go to the Grow Booth out in the foyer. Also, we're a church that believes we go in life-changing mission. You and I wouldn't know about the gospel message unless faithful people had passed that on. We have that responsibility as well. And so uh, uh, we, we do that. We believe it's important to reach others, whether that's across the street or across the world. And we have a couple of opportunities coming up. One of those specifically is second Saturday. It's every second Saturday. You come here in the morning and uh, you get together with a group of people and we minister to different groups in our own community. And so we encourage you to consider that. And that'll be in two weeks on May, May 8th. Um, also, I'd like to uh, announce there's a couple of other things. One is that uh, those of you who are following the sermon series, uh, we do have booklets. If you're here in person, booklets out in the foyer that you can pick up one of those booklets to do your own personal study. And also, we have another membership class coming. We just had 24 people complete the membership class, but we're ready to start another. So on uh, May uh, 23rd, it's a Sunday at uh, uh, 11 o'clock, we'll have our next membership class like to turn your attention to the screens as we uh, uh, look in on some lessons from kids' life. When we gather for worship, there are certain things that we do that make perfect sense. We hear a message that points us to God. But there's also something that we do about once a month or so that might cause some confusion. We have a small cracker and a small cup of juice. And this is what we call communion, or the Lord's Supper. And there's a lot of questions that might come up from this. Uh, what is communion? Why do we do it? Who should take communion? To answer those questions, we have to go back, way, way back, before Jesus was even on earth. You see, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and God sent Moses to lead them out of Egypt into the Promised Land. God sent many plagues to show the Egyptians that he was the one true God. And at the last plague, many people died. But God passed over and protected the people of Israel who obeyed him and trusted in him. And they were set free. In fact, they had to rush out of Egypt. They didn't have time for the bread that they had made with yeast. They didn't have time for the yeast to rise. And so as they left, they had to take flatbread, like that. Now the Israelites celebrated Passover, a feast that remembered how God had saved them and led them out of Egypt. They celebrated Passover for many years. They still celebrate Passover today. 
and that means that Jesus and his disciples celebrated Passover as well. We read about this and it's called the Last Supper. But at that supper, at that Passover meal, Jesus did something very different. Let's see what he did. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You see, Jesus took that bread and he broke it. Not just to give it to all his disciples to divide it up, but as a symbol, as a sign of what was going to happen to him. He was the fulfillment of the promise that we see in Isaiah. In Isaiah, it says, But the servant was pierced because we had sinned. He was crushed because we had done what was evil. He was punished to make us whole again. His wounds have healed us. And Jesus took a cup of wine. Here's grape juice. And he said that the wine was his blood. Now that doesn't mean that his blood was in the cup, but just as the wine was poured out into the cup, Jesus' blood was poured out on the ground as he died on the cross for us. Romans 3.25 says, God gave Christ as a sacrifice to pay for sins through the spilling of his blood. So God forgives the sins of those who have faith. Now Jesus said something very important at that Last Supper, something that we need to remember as we practice communion. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so when we celebrate communion, we're celebrating Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the gift of salvation he brings to all who trust in him. The elements that we have for communion don't matter as much as the fact that we celebrate Jesus in communion. Some churches will have crackers like this, like matzo bread. Some will have little wafers like this or little wafers like this. Some churches will pass around the communion in bowls or trays like this. A lot of churches are having to use these little cups right here. Some churches will have wine and a lot of churches use grape juice. But the elements don't matter as much as why we celebrate communion. I've even had communion with tortillas and Hawaiian bread. There are many ways to practice communion and many different ways that we can worship God, but ultimately it's all about God. It's about celebrating what Jesus did for us. And in communion, there's a special word, the word union. You see, communion unites us as the body of Christ. Christians around the whole world celebrate communion. And through this act, through this special celebration, we are one body. We are the brothers and sisters of Christ. Anyone who has trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and received the gift of eternal life, we invite you to take communion with us. And so we don't do this lightly. It's not just a snack that you have in the middle of the church service. We do this respectfully, just like if you're going to a funeral, or just like when you bow your heads and you quiet your heart when you're praying at the dinner table. We do this respectfully because we remember Jesus' death on the cross, but we also do this joyfully because we remember his resurrection and the gift of salvation he brings to all who believe. Parents, you know your children. 
I encourage you to talk with them about what communion is, what it represents, and who can take communion. We don't have communion in our kids' areas because we want you to be the one to help them make that decision. But know this, they don't have to know everything about the Bible, everything about salvation or their faith, as long as they know that they have placed faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, we invite them to take communion with us. They are part of the body of Christ, and we want to celebrate communion as the body of Christ. We worship God together today. There are many ways to worship God. There are many things that try to divide us as a church, but we know that through Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And through communion, we can celebrate what Jesus has done and the gift he has for all who believe. As we continue with our worship uh, service this morning, we, we're going to sing a new song. We are implored throughout Scripture to sing new songs um, to the Lord. And I was thinking this week about why do we sing new songs? Well, new songs sometimes help us think about things in a new way, uh, maybe things that we haven't thought of before. Um, there's no new truth outside of what is in the Bible, but even sometimes reading a different version of the Bible may help you understand something differently. Uh, but songs are also a way of expre uh, expressing to God how great he is, and, and they're evidence of, of humans using gifts and talents that God has given him to give him more to take them and take it and through the power of his spirit to turn it into something wonderful. And we do that with our lives all the time, whether we're students or parents, teachers, grandparents, uh, or like me, a guy who uh, works with spreadsheets on a computer all day. Uh, we can still give more to God through the way that we do our work. And this song is called Worthy of More. And I want you to think about that as we sing it. And I invite you to join with us. Would you stand as we sing?
every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of all. Would you sing this with me? Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord of all. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord of all. Every him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Your grace. 
a wonderful name, the name of Jesus, our way maker, our hope, who is always worthy of more. What a wonderful name. Jesus, we praise you, for you are worthy of it all. You may be seated. On uh, Monday, I was texting two people at the same time. Uh, one was my wife, Amy. The other was Kenny Rutkowski, the chair of our deacons. And I asked Kenny if he would be available today for at least one service as we commissioned nine new deacons, and he said yes. And I responded with a thumbs-up emoji, except that I accidentally sent a kiss emoji to Kenny instead. And it was a little awkward, and he did not reciprocate. Meanwhile, my wife sent this message. It's just all sitting in the driveway, Levens, in the paper. Obviously, it'll be a little more difficult for some of the walkway with shingles, but I asked him, and I should be putting this in the garage. He said, no, it'll be okay, but maybe you'd like to have your neighbors just be attentive in the driveway, so I don't know what to do with that, and maybe you could text Dan. I don't know anyway. I understood that. Uh, I understood that uh, my wife was... uh, dictating into her phone and not using punctuation, and I knew the context of what uh, she was talking about. Uh, So I was able to grasp that. This illustrates an important principle about interpreting Scripture. In order to do that, you have to ask, what did the original author intend to communicate to the original reader? You will not interpret Scripture correctly unless you ask that question and you deal with that first. That is absolutely crucial. Uh, the Bible can't mean whatever I want it to mean. I must understand the original context, the original audience, the, the background, the original meaning of those words, the culture it was written in. Only then can I begin to rightly apply what the Scriptures say to me in my world. This culture and language change constantly. Think of uh, words that meant one thing when you were younger and what they mean today or if they exist today. Uh, There's a a huge difference in just a number of years. Uh, So uh, the New Testament, the New Testament is 2,000 years old. uh, And uh, we have a very different world than the New Testament world. We must take that into consideration. Think about our Constitution. The United States uh, Article 3, Section 3 says, The Congress shall have no power to declare the punishment of treason, but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person attainted. Never have I used the word attainted in a sentence before. Not sure what it means. I don't even want to know what corruption of blood means. This is a document written 250 years ago in our language, in our country. And it needs a little explanation today. How much more so is that true of the Scriptures written thousands of years ago in another language, in another culture altogether? And uh, that's uh, important as we come to our text today. Uh, We are uh, studying through 1 Corinthians, this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the ancient uh, Greek city, uh, Roman city of Corinth, a Greek culture. And... uh, Paul is writing this because the church is struggling to live for Jesus in this pagan world. And so Paul writes to correct their wrong behavior and their wrong beliefs. And uh, uh, 
I, this is why it's important for us to study through Scripture consecutively, to take a, a book like 1 Corinthians and, and go through it line by line, uh, because we end up dealing with things that I would never choose to deal with, and yet they are part of God's Word, and we must uh, take them seriously. That's how seriously we take Scripture. Uh, the issue that Paul tackles in chapter 11 involves head coverings, hair length, and headship. And this passage is difficult. It's been misapplied, misunderstood, misused by uh, many different people, uh, many who don't take the time to look into the background at all. And so some believe all women should wear hats in church, uh, or they believe that men's hair should never cover their ears, or that women are second-class citizens, or that this scripture is irrelevant, invalid, and should be ignored. And I hope to uh, show you uh, that none of that is right, and that properly understood, this passage has meaning for us today as we seek to follow Jesus in 2021. But uh, this is difficult. This is challenging. So buckle up. We're going to uh, deal with some things here. Uh, Corinth was a melting pot of ethnicities and religions, and the religion part is what I want you to be aware of. One popular god, particularly in ancient Corinth, was Dionysus. And if you go to the museum in Corinth today, you will see this mosaic of Dionysus. Uh, he was the god of wine, fertility, ecstasy, and androgyny. Uh, his Roman name is Bacchus. You're more familiar with that name, the god of wine. Uh, although male, uh, having uh, born male, having male genitalia, Dionysus dressed and acted like a woman. His long-styled hair uh, was feminine appearance. And so these are five different statues of the God, depicting the God that they worship, Dionysus. And you see this long-styled hair. Uh, he's often pictured naked, but when he is clothed, he's generally wearing women's garb in that day. Uh, and, and women were drawn to the cult of Dionysus overwhelmingly. Uh, some historians say because it provided an outlet for their repressed desires. But Dionysus worship involved ecstasy, uh, ecstatic speech, the blurring of gender roles. Those were primary things. And in normal society in Corinth, women dressed modestly and they covered their head. Those celebrating Dionysus temporarily forgot society's gender roles. And uh, there was some sex reversal, some gender reversal that was practiced as part of their worship. And so uh, uh, this... Uh, would be seen in men uh, wearing long flowing hair or men wearing veils or golden hair nets uh, as a sign of their dedication to Dionysus. Uh, women who were showing their dedication to Dionysus would uh, um, use unveiling because that was commonly what women did. Uh, they were veiled, so they would unveil. They would have their hair wild and unkempt. They would, or shave their head in order to indicate their devotion to Dionysus. And some Corinthian art that uh, still exists uh, depicts cross-dressing and transgenderism in relation to the worship of these gods. Uh, I read uh, in the Harvard Theological Review uh, where it said that Dionysus, uh, aptly represents sex role reversal for both sexes with his androgynous appearance. There's some level of androgyny that uh, this god uh, uh, depicted. Um, the Theo Project calls uh, Dionysus the god of cross-dressing and effeminacy. Um, 
in addition to Dionysus, there were other gods, many other gods worshipped that had similar characteristics. A, a more well-known one would be Aphrodite. Uh, that was a dominant. Aphrodite worship was dominant in Corinth. Uh, in her temple there in Corinth, there was an enormous statue of the goddess. Her sexuality is ambivalent and promiscuous, and it also encouraged sex reversal. And I'm not showing uh, depictions of any of these other gods because it's very hard to find one that would not uh, be somewhat offensive. So uh, one way that gender was muddled in these pagan rituals was where male and female worshipers of of, uh, Dionysus or other gods would exchange clothing during the ritual so that men would dress as women and women dressed as men. Uh, Aphrodite herself was depicted at times in male armor uh, or with both male and female organs or in female clothes but having a beard. Uh, Other pagan gods like her offspring, Aphrodite's offspring, Hermaphroditus, also promoted this idea of uniting male and female as one, not distinct in gender at all. So this is the background, and when Paul came preaching the good news of Jesus, uh, uh, his message would include this, like Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the Corinthians would hear that and they say, we know what that means. Uh, just interpreting via their culture, they say, we know what that means. That uh, There's no gender difference. We're all the same. We're all alike. Uh, and that wasn't at all what Paul meant. But with that in mind, listen to our text this morning. Listen to what Paul says. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, beginning in verse 2 And I'm not going to have the entire passage on the screen, but I'm going to read the entire passage. If you have your Bible, you'll follow along because there's all kinds of different ways this is translated, uh, given various versions. But here it is. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with long hair dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with no covering of hair on her head dishonors her head. She's just like one of the shorn women. If a woman has no covering, let her be for now with short hair. But since it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair shorn or shaved, she should grow it again. A man ought not to have long hair, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man." For man, indeed man, was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Wow. There's a lot in there. And we're not even going to begin to touch all of it, but I need to give you some major principles. Some, uh, some, I'm going to limit uh, of all the questions and things that this raises, I'm going to limit this to two main themes that I trust will help you navigate this passage, and then at the end, give you some principles that tie it together as well. So the two main themes are these. Uh, preserve gender distinctions and avoid worship distortions. 
I believe this passage addresses both of these themes. That's what this is about. Uh, so, so let me talk about these and lead you through the text a bit. That, uh, to preserve gender distinctions, that means you have a God-given role, you have a God-given um, identity, and, and this is speaking to Christ followers. So as those who follow Jesus, you must reflect what God has created you to be, who God has created you to be. How do you do that? Well, this passage mentions a couple of things. First of all, follow the headship principle. If you're going to preserve gender distinctiveness, then the headship principle uh, applies here. Paul talks about the head, headship, uh, throughout this passage that I read. The Greek word is kephale. And it refers to either the physical part of your body, your head, or it's also a metaphor, which is how Paul uses it as well, meaning uh, authority, meaning most prominent. And so when Paul says the head of man is Christ and the head of woman is man, he's not denigrating women. He's not making her less than because he goes on to say Christ also has a head. That's verse 3. And Christ's head is God the Father. So understand that there's, there's roles that Paul is talking about, and the ordering of roles is rooted in the Trinity. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you know your Trinitarian doctrine, you know that they are one God in three persons. They are equal in essence and being, but they are different in function and in role. So Jesus is not less than God. He is fully God and man. Uh, and the Holy Spirit is not some force. He is fully God and Spirit. So... Um, Jesus has a role. He, is, uh, he humbly submits to the Father to do his will. And it's not a sign of weakness, but of strength. Now, one reason that God gave man uh, a headship role, and this is in the home and in the church that's being talked about here, home and church, because husband and wife are used throughout, and this is a context of worship that he's talking about. Uh, one reason God gave man a headship role is to counterbalance the great role that women have in originating men. Uh, Paul says Christian women and men are not independent of each other. They're interdependent because verse 12 says, the first woman originated from the first man. That's in reference to Adam and Eve, the creation that God did. And all other men were born through women. But all things originate from God, he says. This is telling us, one, why God created man first. Since every single one of us is born from a woman, it would be easy for women to claim superiority. So God made man first and formed woman from him to guarantee some interdependence. And that's what Paul emphasizes in this text. Because our human birth is inextricably linked to women, God balanced that somewhat by giving positional responsibility to men. And the Corinthian church was using their worship time as an opportunity to flaunt their status and their liberation uh, by, and by uh, ignoring headship principles. And uh, Paul reminds them, no, there's order from God, and this needs to be followed in the church, in the home. So that's the headship principle. That's one way we preserve gender distinctions. The, the other way is by your appearance. Your appearance. In Roman society... A respectable married woman wore a hood or veil. Uh, history professor Aline Roussel, who is a French professor who, who uh, specializes in this time period of history, she writes that respectable women did nothing to draw attention to themselves by wearing a veil or hood. That was common, normal society. And so when the women got together in the church 
and abandoned this practice, that was a problem. Uh, Their distinctness in that society as women was removed. And Paul takes the argument to an absurd point. He says, if you don't care about respectability, if you don't care about gender roles, why not just shave your head altogether and and fit in with with the pagan worshipers? Verse 14 and 15, he talks about the disgracefulness of long hair for a man and the disgracefulness of lack of hair for a woman. Why? Well, that was a gender, generally accepted gender identification in that culture. And not to have those distinctions was a statement that gender didn't matter. In that day, um, hair length connoted one thing in that culture. In our day, hair length is not so much a cultural norm that indicates gender. Now, there are cultural exceptions, even in the Bible. If you're a Nazarite in the Bible, you take a vow not to cut your hair as a man. Uh, So so there was a a cultural difference there. And throughout, Samson was a Nazarite, did not cut his hair. Uh, The principle here is not to blur gender lines. Uh, Stephen Um says that gender distinctions are not a curse to be covered, but a blessing to be celebrated. I believe that's what Paul is emphasizing here, that we are made in God's image. How? Male and female. That's the image of God. That's the full expression of God uh, in human form, that together we uniquely display that image, male and female. God is pleased by that. Uh, That's how it's true from the beginning. And when we distort gender, we distort the image of God. That's why this is so crucial. Uh, And here again, we're talking about the church. We're talking about the Christian home. Now, there's been a normalization of cross-dressing in our culture for years, decades. Transgenderism is widely accepted, and parents raise children without specific gender all too often. And this this concept that gender is fluid or that people choose to be non-binary is is rising. Now, I, I want you to hear that we love we must love all people whatever is going on in their lives whatever's happening we must express the love of christ we must be uh, accepting and caring for everyone and anyone who's struggling with gender issues and transgender uh, we must love them the, the call here is for the people of god to protect and to celebrate the distinction between men and women, particularly uh, in the church in, as, as they worship God. These roles are grounded in the order of creation itself. It's not in blurring the gender lines that God has seen. It's in the totality of them, male and female, made in the image of God. Anything more or less misrepresents the Creator. So that's the, uh, the first... Uh, aspect of this that uh, we need to preserve gender distinctions the other main theme is to avoid worship distortions well how do we do that what the corinthians were doing wrong was happening in a public worship setting as they were praying men and women as they were prophesying men and women they were distorting true worship well how were they doing that a couple of ways one is syncretism syncretism we we have if we're going to avoid worship distortions we have to guard against syncretism that's the meshing together of things that don't belong together the corinthian problem was that they blended elements of the christian faith with their pagan background and belief system Uh, they they interpreted biblical truth through the lens of their culture and through their experience and so that's why paul had to rebuke them over and over about a variety of things including how they celebrated communion the lord's table they were they had turned the lord's table into a drunken feast 
That's, the, that's what happens next in chapter 11. Uh, what was going on? They had made communion look like Dionysus worship, uh, this, this god of, of uh, wine and ecstasy. And uh, before salvation, these Corinthian Christians had participated in religious parties which were about overindulging in wine and overindulging in food and in ecstatic frenzy and debauchery. And now as Christians, they dressed in ways or they acted in ways that were in sync with worshiping these gods and goddesses of their culture. They were syncretism uh, practicing that in in their worship time. And it's this mixing together of different beliefs and uniting opposing practices. And and Paul's warning against this. As the Lord himself says to his worshipers, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm a jealous God. Jesus says, I am the only door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. That's John 10, 9. And that salvation that Jesus promises was made possible when the sinless Jesus took the sin of the world on himself, was executed on a cross, died the death we deserve to die, was raised to life the third day, so that all who trust in him alone would become new creations, would be forgiven, would become sons and daughters of the Almighty God. And as his people, we must guard against muddled worship. And it can happen easily in our day. It does happen. happens all the time in American culture, just as it was happening in Corinth. And so uh, here's one thing I want you to think about. We must zealously protect God's honor in our worship gatherings. We we have, uh, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every time we gather together. I celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every day of my life as a, as a, Part of the church calendar and part of our culture, we celebrate the resurrection at Easter. And uh, that gets muddled. Gets muddled. So the the resurrection can get turned into egg hunts and chocolate bunnies. Now, I don't have a problem with a good egg hunt. I certainly enjoy chocolate bunnies, or real bunnies for that matter. But when it gets, if it gets drawn into a worship context, if, the, if what we're about gets muddled, that's syncretism. That's deadly and dangerous. And even that simple thing is happening in churches across our country. And we must guard against it. Or Mother's Day. I have a wonderful mother, a godly mother who I love and adore, and I honor her, and it is biblical that we honor our mothers. Uh, that, that is biblical. And, and yet... Somehow or other, through the we've turned Mother's Day sometimes into some sort of a religious festival. And sometimes, if you're not careful, you can be in a church that, that puts mothers in the place of that's the day we worship mothers. I might never say it that way, but, but it turns into that. It doesn't usually happen with fathers for some reason, but mothers, it does. And so that's syncretism, and that's that's wrong. It's deadly, dangerous. You can pick a host of examples of of which this is true. Patriotism, that is absolutely true, that that happens. Certainly we thank God for our country and our freedoms, and we we thank God for the safety that we have and and, and so forth. But if if you allow celebrations of patriotism to dominate a a worship gathering, that's syncretism. It's it's idolatry, and it is wrong, a, a nationalism run amok. And so that's the way we must guard against uh, syncretism, a, a worship distortion. And then uh, the other part of that is to guard your appearance. Paul talks a lot about appearance, hair length, dress, and this is why. By their clothing and their hairstyles, the Corinthian church looked 
a lot like pagan worship, not like Christian worship. So verse 4, some men covered their head or grew their hair out in a way that deflected honor from Christ and looked more like the worship of idols. Uh, Why did they do that? Well, a couple of reasons. One is that in Corinth, only wealthy men in that culture wore head coverings. That was a sign of their wealth. And so these Christian men were flaunting their status in a worship service. Wrong. Sinful. Their appearance was distracting. That was inappropriate. Also, the factor that men who worship Dionysus in their worship time wore a saffron-colored covered veil to imitate the appearance of their God. And so for Christian men to wear a covering, a head covering, dishonored the true God in that context. In that context. Uh, Verse 5. Some women were avoiding the cultural practice in their day of wearing their hair up and or wearing a covering on their head during worship. Uh, They felt free to let their hair hang down on their shoulders. And what this implied was that they were available. That's what it implied in their culture. In Corinthian culture, the only women who did not wear a covering were high-class mistresses of influential men. So you see, you got men wearing a covering saying, I'm influential. Women not wearing a covering saying, I'm a mistress of somebody influential. That's what it communicated. Uh, So by their loose flowing hair or their uncovered head, these women were flaunting their liberty in Christ. And it disrespected their husbands. It communicated something dishonorable, all because they felt free in Christ. So similarly, uh, there was a news item this week of a woman who's divorcing her husband because she found a, a picture of him on social media where he was at a club dancing with other women, and there, in the photograph, he did not have his wedding ring on. Now, he said the photographer photoshopped it out. She didn't believe that. They're getting divorced. Why was that important? Well, why is he out with other women dancing in the club, number one? But number two, he took off his ring to signify he was available and free. That's what the hair and the head coverings did for women, and Paul says that's inappropriate in this context in uh in in worship uh so when outsiders would come in to a christian setting um the the christian meetings looked no different than the worship to dionysus or to aphrodite or to other gods and goddesses and this would confuse and offend the angels verse 10 did you catch that part the angels uh, the, the Greek word is anglos, and it, sometimes it can mean human messengers. Here it definitely means heavenly beings, those coming from the spiritual realm. God's heavenly messengers are active in our world and in our lives. And so let, let me point out to you that there, there is an unseen audience when God's people gather to worship. That's why we tape off every other pew to make room for them. No, that's not why, but there, there's an unseen audience here. How do we know that? Well, God's heavenly messengers are active in our world. Hebrews 1.14 says they are ministering to the people of God. You're, you're a child of God, you have a ministering angel. First uh, Peter 1.12 says that these angels are intensely interested in our salvation. They can't get over why God is saving us in this way. They are intensely fascinated with what's going on in our lives and what God is doing. So there's this unseen audience. And so uh, Paul's point is what you wear... And how you act in worship can be a distraction, certainly to the people around you, but also don't forget there's an unseen audience that you can distract, the angels themselves. And I think this is particularly true when a person is fulfilling a key role in public worship. Here it's praying or prophesying, praying or prophesying. You're fulfilling a key role, that's when appearance, I think, really significantly matters. Uh, So I put it in those terms, 
you go to, that, that, that watch your, your appearance because it can help or hinder the gospel. You're playing a key role. It can help or hinder the gospel. Um, I, I, I had uh, one, of the, one of the kind of rules that I make when I'm uh, training other preachers that like, hey, when you're preaching, don't wear anything distracting. Not going to get to, but don't wear. I don't want you wearing baseball jerseys, and I don't want you wearing logos and insignias. And and probably the third or fourth time that uh, I had one, one wonderful guy preaching in the, the church I pastored, he was wearing a hoodie. Okay, but it had a uh, had an insignia with three three letters on it. And afterwards, I said, you know, absolutely nobody heard what you said for the first ten minutes because we're all trying to think, what do those three letters stand for? Because frankly, I was in it too. I couldn't think of a university, a sports team, a clothing company that fit those letters. They weren't his initials. So I, he said, actually, I don't know what they stand for either. I said, there's point number one. Don't ever wear anything like that. Like, uh, you just, it's too distracting. Had a, a wonderful drummer, uh, brother in Christ, to, and uh, he, he wore a shirt that said, I love my wife. And so the whole time, people are going, I wonder why he has to tell us that. Uh, maybe his wife bought the shirt and made him wear it. What's going on here? What should shouldn't this be a time to say, I love Jesus? That would be a better thing rather than the focus on the wife. So, so that, that kind of thing, watch your appearance because it can help or hinder the gospel. So out of everything going on in this text, let me just summarize it with two principles. First of all, your gender brings honor to God. So preserve male-female distinctions. Your gender brings honor to God. Last week, a tweet from well-known atheist philosopher Richard Dawkins caused backlash against him from other atheists. He said this in his tweet, men choose to identify as women, women choose to identify as men, and you will be vilified if you deny that they are not. And obviously that created a huge backlash because he's basically saying you're either a man or you're a woman. Now when an atheist, even an atheist, sees that gender is not a social construct, that, that's pretty significant. Uh, God designed male and female from the beginning to reflect his image. Not in blended together, but uh, in distinction. There's no multiplicity of genders any more than there is a multiplicity of gods. Uh, otherwise, it's a distortion of who God is. Men and women have equal value. Men and women have equal dignity. Men and women have equal significance. But they do have different roles. There's some distinction there. Together, they reflect the Creator. So revel in who God made you to be. Lean into how he designed you and bring him glory. The other summary principle is how you worship reflects who you worship. So practice self-control. So it just doesn't matter. You, yeah, you're free in Christ, but you've got to watch what you do and how you do it and what you're communicating as a believer because how you go about this reflects on who you're worshiping. So uh, one woman shared how she was traveling, she stopped into a well-known church, and she could not worship because the entire time the people in, in front of her were taking selfies. It's like, what God are they worshiping? You know, what's that about? The entire worship service, taking selfies. Interesting. Bringing attention to oneself is, is one of the Corinthian problems, selfishness. Distracting from God is something we must guard against. Uh, Paul repeatedly preaches that, that as Christians, we're to seek the good of others before our own good, before ourselves. And so everything we do reflects on the glory of God. And when it comes to worship, never ignore the impact that your actions, your appearance has on those around you, not to mention the angels. And whether it's your clothing or your facial expressions or how you participate or how you refuse to participate, that's not neutral. It reflects on the image of God. Now, my friend uh, Marshall Shelley tells how he once gave his wife a terrific 
anniversary gift. It was a rain gauge. And at least he thought it was a great gift. Uh, Susan, uh, his wife, was uh, always a weather watcher, and uh, he thought for certain that she'd be delighted to track pre- precipitation on her own, and he congratulated himself on his great creativity. To quote Susan, a rain gauge for our anniversary? She was not impressed. The rain gauge is now a family joke in the Shelley household, a classic example of how a gift can be enjoyed by the giver but not the receiver. And Marshall says, when I hear about authentic worship, usually this means we're trying to create an experience that helps worshipers feel something. Nothing wrong with that, he said. But if our focus is only on our experience, we may be giving God a rain gauge. Are we offering in worship a gift we enjoy and figuring God will like it? He says a real gift. Real worship means knowing what's important to the receiver. This difficult text says that that means our true selves, male and female, with proper respect, giving God the honor he deserves. Let's do that now. Would you stand and let's sing together.
invite you to, to uh, stay with us just another moment as we recognize, ordain uh, some new deacons. I want to ask any of our new deacons, there are nine of them who are present to come join me here on the platform, as well as any of our elders who are with us. Uh, put the deacons here in, in front, and uh, elders stand uh, here in the back with me. And uh, we've got a picture of all of them uh, in uh, their names as well. And um, I'm, I'm just having you stand because this is an important moment. I'll also, uh, Kenny Ripkowski, I promise not to kiss him if he's here. Where is he? Okay, there he is. All right. He was afraid. Weren't you, weren't you afraid, Kenny? I'm sorry. Uh, Ken, how long have you been our deacon chair now? This year? Since, since August. And we haven't recognized that. that, that some of these deacons, uh, we, um, we've got four elders and uh, some of the deacons here, some of them have been uh, deacons since um, the beginning of this year, maybe, or no, we were going to ordain some of them in March last year, and then everything was shut down, and since then we've had nine uh, deacons and a total, I think, of 24 deacons on our deacon board, and uh, this is an important function. Uh, They've gone through our vetting uh, vetting process. Most of them went through months of classes with me and actually survived that. Chad and Josh, Kevin, uh, Ernie, Wes, William, uh, Jeff, Ebby, and Jim. Uh, in the New Testament, the uh, position of deacon is, was created because the elders needed help. Uh, the practical needs of the church were preventing the elders from prayer and studying scripture. And so a group of spiritual men with good reputations was chosen, and one of those was Stephen, who was soon put to death by an angry mob, but you, you knew that. Um, these uh, nine men fulfill... Uh, biblical qualifications. They've already proved themselves in ministry. They were presented to the congregation and approved by the elders. And so uh, we want to lay hands on uh, these deacons and including Kenny as we we recognize him as the chair of this uh, group and uh, appreciate his ministry. So let's lay hands on these uh, men and and, uh, by doing so we ordain them, uh, these nine and Kenny for leading the team. Let me pray the words of 1 Timothy 3. Lord, we commission uh, Kenny and Ebby, Chad, Wes, Ernie, Kevin, William, Jeff, and Jim as deacons. Lord, may they continue to be men of, in- of dignity and integrity, not addicted to wine or money, faithful to their wives, good managers of their households. As they serve well, may they be rewarded with respect and increase confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. Empower, encourage them to serve you with their eyes on you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's uh, thank these men for their service. And God bless you all. Go in peace.
working in 